are listening to The Private Citizen, the podcast that is always asking the next question. This is episode 134 for Friday, the 25th of November, 2022. Specialized Idiots. Hello, everybody. My name is Fab. I'm your host coming to you live on tape <laughs> from the Fab Industries offices in downtown Düsseldorf in Germany. Um, yeah, I'm recording this um, ahead of time, uh, so I'm not live streaming this, so there will be no live feedback, but that is okay because uh, today's episode will, will deal pretty much only with feedback. Um, I got a very nice email Uh, as an answer to a, pr a previous episode and I thought uh, I'll, I'll give it some space because I think it deserves it and then we also have some some other feedback um, this is the second episode for this week um, I will be taking the next week off the podcast because I am doing other things I hope you understand um, I'll be back the week after with more interesting topics I hope um, yeah, and with that, let's 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 get into uh, the topic at hand. Let's um, see what um, people uh, have been have been writing me about previous episodes. So. Um, As usual, um, if you go to privatecitizen.press, you can find the show notes um, for this episode, which in this case is pretty much the email that Bennett wrote me. Um, Bennett, a longtime listener, um, was commenting on some previous episodes and, and wrote a lot, a lot of things, uh, plus sent me a lot of links um, from which I've pulled even more information. Um, so I think... We should we should dive right in if you want to read along or if you want to read more. Um, you know, I've got a lot of Wikipedia links that I'm reading like um, a few paragraphs from. If you want to read them all, the links are on privatecitizen.press. So uh, Bennett um, uh, wrote me this email and said, uh, sorry that I haven't written in a while. There's been a lot going on at work and I'm currently buying an apartment. So I took a break from listening for about half a year which I can understand. Um, I'm, I'm a listener of podcasts and I know that you go through changes in your life and um, sometimes you listen more and uh, listen less. That's just the way it goes. Um, but I, I, I do like that you, you're writing in, that you're listening again, you're writing in nonetheless. Uh, Bennett says, I thoroughly enjoyed episodes uh, 129 and 130, but I agreed too much to bother writing in. And I'm pretty sure... Um, I you know I can't be um, I can't be certain, but I'm pretty sure Bennett is uh, the Bennett that is, has also been uh, supporting the show for all this time. Um, and and if that is the case, I would like to thank you for supporting the show, even though you're not listening. That is um, more than anybody could ask for, and, and it's great. Um, so thanks for that. Anyway, Bennett continues. Uh, I wanted to write in about episode 131 because I thought you were a little unclear on some definitions. Note that I don't... So episode 131 um, was uh, entitled The New Cast System, and I was uh, talking about, um, well, you know, artificial intelligence and, and AI algorithms and what I think it means... Um, for the future, um, you know, I was I was painting a, you know, some people said a bleak picture of of the future of like basically two kinds of people, 
the people that understand what algorithms do and that program them and the people that just will be controlled. Um, so Bennett was is writing in response to that. I want to write uh, in about episode 131 because I thought you were a little unclear on some definitions. Note that I don't consider myself an expert on machine learning, but I did take some graduate level courses and my dad is an expert in the field. So uh, you know much more than me, obviously. So um, thanks for taking the time and um, sending feedback. It's very much appreciated. And if anybody wants to send feedback on this or other episodes, um, we'll go into that at the end of the show. Um, but you can also uh, just go to privatesystem.press and it has details on every show note page and uh, on the contact link up the top. Um, yeah, so I think uh, it's a very good idea that you're writing in um, because, of course, um, I'm also, you know, not an expert on this and I do appreciate when people that know more about a topic um, write in and then we can, you know, I can uh, correct mistakes that I've made or we can uh, develop further thoughts from that and we're all learning. Um Bennett continues, uh, you are correct that no one in research uses the term AI. That's a marketing term which can be applied to anything. The insider term, which is basically what that uh, AI professor that I was talking about also said, um, the insider term for the interesting stuff as opposed to programming is machine learning. <laughs> I like this, like the interesting stuff as opposed to programming. Um, there are actually many different approaches here. If you read a few paragraphs of the Wikipedia articles in the following list, you'll have a good overview. So we're going to do that now. So these are all um, many different approaches that go into machine learning, as we're going to call it. Because on here we don't like bullshit terms. Um, by the way, I hope you are, if you're, you're leaning back and you're ready to listen to this and got yourself a drink, I've got some tea or gray hot. Mm winter um is is, is hasn't isn't, isn't coming it's definitely here i'm over here and i'm i'm uh, i'm enjoying uh tea again now that it's uh so cold outside i might just i'm just i'm recording this in the evening and i'm i'm just back from a run outside and it was very very cold um the upside is i'm now uh, very awake 10 kilometers of running in the in like what is it now i don't even let me let me not lie. I should probably look this up. Um, oh, there, there. Uh, yeah, I'm pulling up my phone, and of course, I haven't turned it off because I'm a noob, and you immediately hear the hear the uh, like the the modem going. Um, I'm sorry for that. I mean, it's now six degrees outside. Yes, um, that gels with what it was feeling like. Anyway, um, hope you're you're ready uh, to assimilate some. I mean, this is. Pretty much of what I'm reading now is totally over my head. I probably have to disclaim this. Um, I was um, mathematics was my least favorite subject in school. I didn't like it. I still don't like it. Um, I'm of the firm opinion that we invented the computer to do calculations for us, um, and I don't want to be one of the people that teaches the computer how to do the calculations. So um, a lot of what I'm reading out here even though I'm trying, um, it's basically meaningless to me. Um, so please uh, bear with me. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying, okay? So the first thing we're learning about is support vector machines. In machine learning, support vector machines, SVMs, also support vec vector networks, are supervised learning models with associated learning algorithms that analyze data for classification and regression analysis. 
Given a set of training examples, each marked as belonging to one of two categories, an SVM training algorithm builds a model that assigns new examples of one category or the other, making it a non-probabilistic binary linear classifier. Although methods such as plot scaling exist to use SVM in a probabilistic classification setting. This is why Wikipedia is sometimes shit. <laughs> you know, whoever wrote this probably knows what they're talking about, but they're very bad. This is why we need journalists, and they're very bad at explaining this to people who don't. Um, so what I think they're talking about is the kind of machine learning where um, you've probably seen examples of this, um, where uh, you train a model to tell you if something's a cat or a dog, right? Uh, and as, as far as I understand, um, supervised... Um, machine learning um, is when basically you uh, you have a model do something like this and then it of course will get things wrong especially in the beginning um, it will it will la label some cats as dogs and the other way around um, and you supervise it right you go back and you say well this is this was wrong and then the model gets better whereas unsupervised learning is just you let you let the model go at the data Uh, and you you don't supervise, which I think is often, um, uh, I, I, yeah, it's probably also sometimes the case um, of uh, you know when it, depending on what algorithm you use, but it, but sometimes I, I think it's also because um, you're training it with so much data that you can't supervise it, right? Because the computer does something, uh, whatever the machine learning model does to train. Uh, very fast and you can't be there sitting and you know supervising it um, anyway SVM maps training examples to points in space uh, so as to maximize the width of the gap between the two categories right so it's like a graph and then uh, it, 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 it it you know it looks looks in air quotes at the picture And then assigns it in, in in the graph, right? This is this is very much a dog. This is very much a cat. This is kind of a dog that looks a little bit like a cat. You know, like those. I mean, like a German Shepherd would probably be very far in the cat in the dog category. And then there's like these little fluffy dogs, you know, that people carry around in their bags. That you know probably would be more in the cat category, right? And then there's so probably some cats, like some of the naked cats, would probably. Uh, you know, be more towards the dog because they kind of look like um, small, like Vinthund uh, kind of, you know, greyhound kind of dogs. I don't know. Uh, that's what I'm what I'm thinking here. Um, new examples are then mapped into that same space and predicted to belong to a category based on which side of the gap they fall. So this is something um, that was explained to me once uh, in a talk where I was where they were talking about this dog and cat example where you basically. Um, The, the 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 person talking um he was talking about the, uh, basically the fallacy of why you know something like this isn't intelligence right because the algorithm the computer doesn't know if something something is actually a dog or a cat it just predicts um like you know it it has some um criteria right and you give it a picture and it goes Or this this falls more towards this criteria than that, um, but it's a it's a purely statistical analysis, basic basic based on, uh, you know whatever 
however that it's not like a human right a human does like pattern matching and and has learned certain things about cats and dogs and uh, goes uh, yeah this is like you know uh, and and extrapolate like a human for example um so a machine learning uh, algorithm when you like one of the examples in this talk was um when you teach it like let's say you, you try to teach it the difference between a cat and a dog and it um and you use only head on pictures right of a of a dog's or a cat's face um then it will be very good because you're supervising it you know you're telling it you know what was right what was wrong um after lots of iterations be very very good to classify this kind of picture uh, if you then give it a sight on picture of a cat or a dog it doesn't know what to do with it because it doesn't fit in how you trained the model whereas a human can basically tell a cat and a dog um, you know once once a child has learned this can basically uh, tell a cat and a dog from any angle because the human brain can just you know in 3d space kind of extrapolate okay that's what the ears look like from that angle and so so that's why you know a, a real brain works a lot different than, than this kind of thing which is why the name uh, artificial intelligence is such a such a stupid name i heard another uh, researcher once um refer to this as uh, i was a german researcher uh, uh said um that 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 uh, he thinks that this is a translation error which i don't think it is but i think maybe it was just in jest as well um so the translation error being uh, from the English word intelligence, which can also mean lots of data, right? As in the Central Intelligence Agency, like, you know, spying, collecting data. And um, so uh, he said that basically artificial intelligence is just, you know, dealing with lots of data instead of, you know, artificially dealing with lots of data is is a much better description than, you know, artificial intelligence as in a, a living organ, a human being. Um Anyway, um, support vector machines. In addition to performing linear classifications, SVMs can efficiently perform a nonlinear classification using what is called the kernel trick, implicitly mapping their inputs into high-dimensional feature spaces. Uh, when when data, I hate it when they do this. It says when data are unlabeled. I'm going to fix that on the fly. When data is unlabeled, supervised learning is not possible and an unsupervised learning approach is, approach is required which attempts to find natural cluttering of the data to groups and then map new data to these formed groups so you know labeled being okay i have a data set and i know this is a dog and this is a cat and i use that to train uh, whereas if unlabeled i don't know what these things are i'm just throwing random pictures at the thing and it, it will group those pictures into groups there will not necessarily be cats and dogs, but you know, there'll be. Um, it'll be able to recognize things that look similar to a computer algorithm. Um, the support vector cluster algorithm created by Hava Siegelman and Vladimir Vapnik. What a name, Vladimir Vapnik. Apply Vladimir Vapnik. I don't know if he's Russian, but I hope he is, and he, I hope he drinks lots of vodka. The Mr. Vladimir, Tovarish, Tovarish Vladimir. <laughs> I I apologize to any Russian listeners. Um, uh, and Vladimir Vapnik applies the statistics of support vectors developed in the support vector algorithm to categorize unlabeled data. Okay, so that's support vector machines. So that's a category of machine learning algorithms and then there's linear regression 
In statistics, linear regression is a linear approach for modeling the relationship between a scalar response and one or more explanatory variables, also known as dependent and independent variables. The case of one explanatory variable is called simple linear regression. Uh, For more than one, the process is called multiple linear regression. The term is distinct. This is Wikipedia. You you read this as somebody who doesn't know the topic. You have no idea what they're just talking about, right? You have no idea. And then they go, this is distinct from... I don't even know what it is. I don't care if it's distinct from something else. I don't know what it is at this point. Like, some of these people who write this are the worst writers in history. (laughs) I mean, they can write functional sentences, but they don't know how readers work. Um, This term is distinct from maybe also because it's several people just editing it over and over again. That could also be the case. Uh, This term is distinct from multivariate linear regression. Oh, yes, of course it is. Yes, yes. Mm, Yeah, where's my pipe? Uh, Of course it is. There's multiple, uh, where multiple correlated dependent variables are predicted rather than a single scalar variable. In linear regression, the relationships are modeled using linear predictor functions whose unknown model parameters, are you falling asleep yet? Uh, Whose unknown model parameters are estimated from the data. Such models are called linear models. Most commonly, the conditional mean of the response given the values of the explanatory variables or predictors is assumed to be an affine function of those variables of those values less commonly my brain's zoning out less common much longer ago, less commonly the conditional median or some other quantile is used like all forms of a regression analysis linear regression focuses on the conditional probability distribution of the, the response given the values of the predictors rather than on the joint probability distribution of all these variables which is the domain of multivariate analysis mm-hmm. linear regression was the first type of regression analysis to be studied rigorously and to be extensively used in practical applications this is because models which depend linearly on their unknown parameters are easier to fit than models which are non-linearly related to their parameters and because the statistical probabilities the resulting estimators are easier to determine i have no if you if you have no idea what they just said we're in the same group um um yeah so i'm so what I'm getting from this is a statistical approach um, to uh, you know you you have you have variables and then uh, something happens and then you have a response and you're doing a statistical analysis of um, of this right so um, you're looking you're looking at a system right so I. Um, I, I, I've been in some talks about, you know, people who who use machine learning um, in industry, for example, right? And there's this approach for machine learning where um, you are, uh, which, which they use in industry, let's say, uh, in, a, in a company that builds cars, where you have a, a machine um, that that does something, right? And and you have you have you have you have variables, right? You, let's say you have, um, or actually with the cars, I'm, I'm mixing up two examples. But let's say you have a you're you're, you're working in industry, you have a, a machine, um, you know uh, that does something, maybe heat water, right? And it has all these 
um, variables that you can measure, right? You have like, maybe there's a pump in there and, and that works at a certain like frequency, whatever. You can, you can measure things, right? You can measure the power going in, all this. And those are your variables. And then you, um, you can train a model to basically learn with statistical analysis. And I think this is what you use uh, regression analysis for. Uh, and I think that would be a linear regression, if I understand this correctly. Um, oh, no, actually, this would be uh, uh, because you have more variables. Right? Linear regression would be one variable. But anyway, you could also do it with one variable. But basically, what you're trying to do, you're trying you you the model learns what this machine knows nothing about this machine, right? It just observes this machine working, um, and then it learns. Oh, let's take a server, right? Uh, let's take a server. You have a web server, uh, uh, and and it's just the the machine just has um, certain parameters, right? The 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 power consumption, the CPU. Uh, uh, the percentage of the CPU load, um, maybe the the net like the network interface throughput, maybe like I/O of like the the drives or whatever, right? Maybe how many processes are running, and then you can tra train a model uh, looking at lots of servers and how they perform, and the model will kind of learn what the normal distribution of these variables is, so that it will learn what this server looks like when it's working normally. And then it can identify like deviations from the like statistical deviations, and and the more you train this model, the better it gets at kind of uh, predicting what will happen. So it can basically tell you after some time um, that um, when your when your CPU load gets this high for this long, um, you will have a failure, right? Or the I think the example this guy was talking about um, in the in the I think it was in the car industry in the German car industry, um, they had this. So there's 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 somebody whose job it is. They have the car on the belt, right? And they have, and they basically they they um, screw the like the the, the wheel, not the wheel, but like the you know the the the, the thing the wheel gets mounted on, right? Um, not even like not not a hubcap, but you know the the um, basically the thing that that you that that they will you will mount the tire on right um and you you like or maybe you take the whole tire i don't know you know you screw the thing on basically you have like you know like in formula one when they take the the wheels of whatever and you'll have this this machine um that that screws like you have a automatic a hydraulic like screwdriver basically right a a, 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 a bolt tightening device right and these are all like basically uh smart devices now right so they have um they have data on these and they basically trained a model um so the so the thing is so apparently there's this thing where like sometimes you get like a, a weak component which which will happen but like um so so they have i think it was the tires but i'm i'm not sure right so they were screwing like things on and they 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 realized or they they knew this for a while um, that sometimes like you get a weak screw right so then the metal of the screw you get it from the manufacturer and like every i don't know thousands screw uh is like uh is weak it's like structurally weak and because they they screw these in so with so much power to be efficient and be quick um the screw will fail and the head will just get destroyed but you only notice with these machine with these screwdrivers the operator only noticed when he's already screwed 
the screw in, right? At which point it's like really hard. Basically, they had to, I think, throw the... So it's so hard to get the screw drilled out again, whatever, that it's not worth it. They just replaced the whole part of the car. I think it was like on the axle or whatever, that you screw that, whatever you screw in there, right? Um, somebody who's listened to this, who actually probably knows this, is screaming at, at, at their device phone right now, whatever. I'm sorry for that. But like, I'm, tr- I'm just trying to make sense of this Wikipedia bullshit. But like, basically, um, so they had data from the screwdriver and they realized... Uh, by running analysis and by doing like models, training models and stuff, they realized that as soon as you start screwing the screw in, uh, you know by the response, like by the torque or whatever, you you know that it's weak. So you can actually um, stop it. Like you can, like the moment the guy starts drilling this thing in, the you can you could teach an L, L, uh, a machine learning model to realize immediately that 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 when the screw is broken by the data, right, um, by how it the the system behaves, um, that the screw is broken and it can stop the screwdriver, right, and it will just not screw that screw in or not further, so you can still screw it out. Um, so you know that. Uh, you know, you 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 know already that the that the material is weak, um, which is actually fascinating, I think. Um, and that this is what you use something like this for. I that's how I understand it. That's uh, what what the application of linear regression is, as far as I understand. But as you can tell, I'm just I'm just trying my best here. <laughs> um, then we have decision trees. Um, and uh, about decision trees, uh, Bennett uh, says, uh, these you can imagine imagine as nested if statements. And then that sentence already better than what Wikipedia says. Wikipedia says, decision tree is a decision support tool. It's not only used in machine learning, apparently. A decision tree is a decision support tool. It uses a tree-like model of decisions and their possible consequences, including chance, event outcomes, resource costs, and utility. It is one way to display an algorithm that only contains contains conditional control statements. The decision trees are commonly used in operation, operations operations research specifically in decision analysis to help identify a strategy most identify a strategy most likely to reach a goal but are also popu- a popular tool in machine learning and as far as i understand it's kind of what the um what the uh the processors do right i think this is um how the uh these these processor vulnerabilities um uh kind of kind of worked oh, now I'm I'm talking about this. I'm just pulling this out of my ass as I'm just talking about this, and I I, rem- I can't remember the name, which is appalling because I wrote several articles about this shit, um, and I don't have Twitch chat, chat so I'm gonna have to look this up. Processor uh, vulnerabilities. Bear with me here. Intel. That's gonna be it. A meltdown. Meltdown inspector. Right where these. Um, the vulnerability was in this function that these processes do because um, they're really good at parallelizing things, right? So they're really good at running things in parallel, but other things have a lot of cost, and so the the like in 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 terms of time, right, or or, or power, like you know, resources for the processor. So these um, these engineers figured out that like 
when you so the process is very fast at doing certain things right but with other things it it has to wait right so it so it has to make decisions at some point and and it basically needs to send data over a bus to like some other component maybe the ram which is like slower because it's like literally has to go out of the die like out of the processor right and so that's like milliseconds longer um so they realized it is actually more efficient to us if we if we're at this point and now now we have to wait for another system to tell us which of these two calculations we need to do next that takes so that takes longer than us just doing both calculations in parallel and then when the when the other part of the computer comes back with what calculation is actually correct we just take the one that was correct and throw the other one away right and they just do that on scale and that is kind of like what like these kind of the, the when you map that like how it does like this it, it does that over se several levels right it doesn't stop there it doesn't do two calculations and then waits on the decision no it, it goes through a decision tree like it might actually be already like three uh forks down the tree before the answer comes back what the first correct fork was right and then it just throws the, the other side of the tree away but keeps going so it just keeps calculating things ahead um just just because calculating them is quicker than waiting for the response um so and that's kind of what decisions trees are also like i think we also have the k-nearest neighbors algorithm in statistic the k in statistics the k-nearest neighbor algorithm also knn it's a non-parametric supervised learning method first developed by Evelyn Fix and Joseph Hodges in 1951 and later expanded by Th Thomas Cover. It is used for classification and regression. In both, ca both cases, the input consists of the k-closest training examples in a data set. The output depends on whether KNN is used for classification or regression. KNN is a type of classification where the function is only approximated locally and all computation is deferred until function evaluation. Since this algorithm relies on distance for classification, the features represent different physical units or come in vastly different scales than normalizing the training data. Then normalizing the training data can improve accuracy dramatically. Okay, I'm gonna have to read this thing. Basically, what what you're what you're listening to here is what I do when I do research. Uh, when I, I sit there and I have to um, like basically figure out for myself what these people mean, <laughs> this, this is what goes on in my brain. Uh, since this algorithm relies on distance for classification, if the features represent different physical units or come in vastly different scales, then normalizing the training data can improve its accuracy dramatically. Both for classification and regression, a useful technique can be to assign weights to the contributions of the neighbors so that the nearer neighbor uh, the nearer neighbors contribute more to the average than the more distant ones. For example, a common weighting scheme consists of giving each neighbor a weight of one, uh, uh, I guess that is one uh, divided by D, one over D, where D is the distance to the neighbor. Uh, the neighbors are taken from a set of objects for which the class for KNN classification or the object's prop object property value for KNN regression is known. This can be thought of as the training set for the algorithm, though no explicit training step is required. Okay. 
um yeah so this this sounds like to me like something like this as well um although it doesn't really do any computation it says it just uh function is only approximated locally um so it just um classifies things on how distance distant they are from each other right um this sounds to me a, like a, a little bit again like this kind of um thing that you know uh support vector machines like this i guess that's what classification generally is i think that's just another method of doing something like this what we're learning here or you know what i guess i kind of knew but like this is just driving it home is that machine learning aka artificial intelligence is basically just statistics i mean it's very clever use of statistics but it's basically just statistics um and then we also have uh, K I like that interestingly that there's no training step required. I actually have to look into this much further and this sounds very interesting, this K nearest neighbor. Um, we also have K means clustering. K means clustering is a method of vector quantization originally from signal processing that aims to partition N observations into K clusters in which each observation belongs to the cluster with the nearest mean, cluster centers or cluster centroid serving as a prototype of the cluster. This results in a partition of the data space into Voronoi cells. Sure. K-means clustering minimizes within cluster variances, squared Euclidean distances, but not regular Euclidean distances, which could be the more difficult Weber problem. The mean optimizes square errors. This gets worse and worse, whereas only the geometric median minimizes Euclidean distances. This, this, this is like literally, this is the first paragraph in a Wikipedia page. This is supposed to tell you what you're reading. This is just techno babble. I mean, they, they, they really have to recrystallize the delicious matrix of this to, to work, I guess. For instance, better Euclidean solutions can be found using K-medians and K-medoids. I mean, this, you could just, like, in Star Trek The Next Generation, this is something like Geordi could say. Like, because, like, why can't we go there? Uh, and then Riker says the warp drive is offline, and then, then Picard looks at Geordi and says, why is the warp drive drive offline? And Geordi says, well, you know, the, the mean optimizes squared errors, whereas, oh, no, that actually doesn't work. Uh, and then Geordi says, um, um, uh, th this is because um, we flew through a, a spatial anomaly, and this resulted in a partitioning of the data space in our warp core in, in, into Voronoi cells. Um, we now have to do some k-means clustering to minimize within cluster variances of the squared Euclidean distances, but not the regular Euclidean distances. That would be a more difficult Weber problem. I mean, um, the the problem is computationally difficult, NP-hard. However, efficient heuristic algorithms converge quickly to a local optimum. These are usually similar to the expectation maximization algorithm for mixtures of Gaussian distributions via an iterative refinement approach employed by both k-means and Gaussian, mixed Gaussian mixture modeling. I know what like Gauss rifle is. Is this that similar? 
they both use cluster centers to model. The, I think what we're also learning here, right, is that Bennett thought I was much more intelligent than I am. <laughs> Um, however, K-means clustering tends to find clusters of comparable spatial extent, while the Gaussian mixture models allow clusters to have different shapes. Okay. I mean, so this is also like mapping things in space, right? Um, since it's vector quantization, it, I mean, a vector is a, a function of, you know, getting from one point to the other, right? So I think that's what they mean it kind of finds um clusters of comparable spatial extent that sounds like something out of star trek as well um the unsupervised k-means algorithm has a loose relationship to the k-nearest neighbor classifier a popular supervised machine learning technique for classification is often confused with k-means due to the name applying the one nearest neighbor classifier to the cluster centers obtained by k-means classifiers new data into the existing clusters. This is known as nearest centroid classifier or Rocchio algorithm. All right. Uh, makes complete sense to me. So I think I was actually, um, recently I was at a science slam and I think um, now that I, now that I'm reading this, I think one of the, 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 the people there, I mean, this, this, these are people, it's like a poetry slam except, except you, um, kind of present your research and this was somebody who used machine learning who was um uh working on um implants you know retinal implants basically um they um this is for people who uh do not have functioning um you know light sensing cells in their retina right so you like the the little you know the, the 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 rods and whatever you know learned about in school that are on the back of your retina that kind of sense light and basically build the, the whatever your brain you know con reconstitutes as an image, and you can have implants where you basically put a chip behind your retina, and oh no, I actually I think they have no what it is exactly they have the rods right and they do sense light but like they I think the 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 connection to the brain is broken i don't think i don't know if like their uh their optic nerve is severed or they can't do that so basically you um they do have like the cells but they're not connected to the brain um so basically what you do is since you can't connect that because we can't like neurons you can't grow neurons um you kind of or you you know because you, you can stimulate existing neurons to you know grow but you can't have, make new neurons um so they put like a chip in the back of your eye with like electric because the nerves still work right they have electric impulses and they put like little probes in there and the chip can kind of um sense the electric impulses now what the chip now has to do is take that and build some build another neck electric signal right it's connected to the other side of your like wherever you know the nerves go to the brain and it kind of um it has to translate that into something your brain can understand. And what they figured out is that you can do signal processing that you usually do um, on on sound waves, right? And that um, basically these electrical impulses they get, um, like that tell you if something, if a spot is bright or dark, 
is kind of like um, it behaves like sound wave, and they actually they used I think a Fourier um, transformation on like the electric signal they got, and basically the resulting um, data they they put into a machine learning algorithm and they trained machine learning algorithms to basically figure out you know what are the what are the bright and the dark parts here and then they you know have a thing where that translates it's fascinating shit but i think they used k-means clustering for that at least that's what this um, description kind of sounded to me like um we also have the expectation maximization algorithm i'm, I'm probably talking complete bullshit here and uh and and bennett wrote me a very long email and he's gonna have to write a much longer email this is this is my secret uh of generating content right and then he has, has to write me a much longer email where he um, has to clear up all the shit i just said it's gonna take much longer and i'll, I'll have content for years <laughs> um let's have the expectation maximization algorithm statistics and ex expectation maximization em algorithm is an iterative method it's very important that you use uh, um, abbreviations that also ha have another meaning uh, in, in, in other parts of science. It's very important. That's to confuse the noobs, right? Uh, in statistics and expectation maximization, EM algorithm is an iterative method to find local maximum likelihood or maximum poster posteriori MAP estimates of parameters in statistical models, where the model depends on unobserved latent variables. The EM iteration alternates, no, the EM iteration alternates between performing an expectation E step, which creates a, f a function for the expectation of the log likelihood evaluated using the current estimate for the parameters, and a maximization M step, which computes parameters maximizing the expected log likelihood found in the E step. These parameter estimates are then used to determine the distribution of the latent variables in the next E step. Okay, so basically it it looks at variables, right? Um, and then it creates, it tries to guess how likely a certain outcome is from that, right? Um, and then it maximizes like it takes that to an extreme right um and then uh it uses that like it kind of like uses this extreme to kind of uh inform the next thing when it's like you know tries to you know compute what it's expected so i i'm guessing what this kind of does this is how i understand it it kind of um, eliminates by 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 observing something and then guessing what will happen. It eliminates the the most extreme um, like expectations every time, right? So it'll just slowly kind of jigger itself towards the middle, right? Towards the 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 the, the mean, the, the 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 most likely outcome, because you know statistically in most cases you want the i mean the most likely outcome often is just like the the and you know the basically the average i guess you know like um uh you know you, you observe a plane and it just like does a little wobble and if you didn't expect oh it's going to crash it's probably not going to crash right 
and then uh, if you analyze like the next wobble, you're like, oh, it's gonna crash. It's not gonna crash. So that wobble doesn't make it crash. So what does it actually doesn't make it crash, right? You kind of um, that that's how I I understand how this algorithm works. But I you know I read about this the first time, you know, like a week ago when I read this email a few days ago, and now again. So I don't you know. I'm I'm just I'm just I'm just pissing in the wind here. Um, then also we also have gradient descent and gradient ascent in mathematics. Gradient descent, also often called steepest descent, is the first. I, I've heard this term before actually. Is a first order iterative optimization algorithm for finding a local minimum of a differentiable function. The idea is to take. This is a much better explanation, by the way. This is how Wikipedia worries varies um, the idea is worries as well the idea is to take repeated steps in the opposite direction of the gradient uh, or approximate gradient of the function at the current point because this is the direction of steepest descent conversely stepping in the direction of the gradient will lead to a local maximum of that function the pr procedure is then known as a gradient ascent okay um, so you 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 have a, a data curve, right? A, a gradient, and you're trying to find the minimum, or like the the maximum, and um, yeah. So you know, this look that sounds like a relatively simple, simple, simple function. I guess what you're doing is you're building that gradient, right? So you, I guess you got data points coming in, and you're trying to build a gradient curve. I guess you know. So, uh, in our um, Ethernet example, you have um, you know you have the 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 download the in, the incoming bandwidth, and it 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 varies, and you're trying to build like a a gradient of like what's the you know what's what's the minimum here, or what's like what's what's the maximum here. And you're trying to like I guess from data points build that. That's what I'm what I'm getting here. And then we have something else that um, that I also heard before, which is definitely the most fun of these or the most fun sounding, which is Monte Carlo sampling. Uh, Monte Carlo methods or Monte Carlo experiments are a broad class of computational algorithms that rely on repeated random sampling to obtain numerical results. I think this is um, what's called Monte Carlo because you know the Monte Carlo casinos, um, as far as I can remember, record, like for example, the roulette numbers. Like they have to record all the numbers, so they have books, books upon book. I guess these days it's a computer database, right? With all these roulette uh, numbers, which is actual random data, which you can use, right? It's not pseudo random; it's actually random data. Um, it's kind of like, uh, I guess, like a be back in the day, I think they had like, uh, you know, people like this CIA had like these experiments where they would drop things or whatever to actually have real uh, random data to use in uh, as, 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 as randomness source uh, in encryption because they didn't want to use pseudo-random because you know that the algorithm could, could be attacked and you can't attack actual random data. If it's actually random, who knows? Depends on the experiment, but anyway, so this is this is one of a uh, source you could use something like this. Um, the underlying, oh, well, it's actually shit because it's it's known, it's public, I guess. So this you'd, you'd have you'd have to have something like this way only you know the data. Um, 
uh, if you're the CIA. The underlying concept is to use randomness to solve problems that might be deterministic in principle. They are often used in physical and mathematical problems and are most useful when it is difficult or impossible to use other approaches. Monte Carlo methods are mainly used in three problem classes optimization, numerical, numerical integration, and generating draws from a probability distribution. In physics-related problems, Monte Carlo methods are useful for simulating systems with many coupled degrees of freedom, such as fluids, disordered materials, strongly coupled solids, and cellular structures. Other examples include modeling phenomena with significant uncertainty in inputs, such as the calculation of risk in business and in mathematics, evaluation of multidimensional definite in integrals with complicated boundary conditions. This is very complicated, but understandable. This text is much better than the previous ones. In application to systems engineering problems, space, oil exploration, aircraft design, Monte Carlo-based predictions of failure, cost overruns, and schedule overruns are routinely better than human intuition or alternative soft methods. So the idea here is for something uh, where you don't have data or the system is so complicated that you basically, you can't, right, you, you could build a simulation but then if you forget like certain factors you might be completely off um, you use something like this um, where you basically use randomness um, you know I don't understand how it works obviously but like you you use random uh, distribution to, to, to figure something like that out um, I don't know how you do that for like how you predict failures uh, by just using random data, but I guess, you know, that's why we have people who can do that. But um, definitely uh, sounds interesting. But it gives you, I mean, I, I'm reading a lot of this also out to you because I think it gives a good overview. And I think that was Bennett's intention also. Like the different kind of methods that I use that go into machine learning, like the, the, the gamut of things. Uh, so it's not like one you know, one algorithm is all these different kind of ways you can you can approach something like this. Um, simulated annealing. I but with the with the Monte Carlo methods, I think where I heard about it is actually was in uh, in in um, in case of uh, I think it was a computer game engine. Basically, they tried to um, uh, go beyond you know just using shaders for water and actually create a realistic. A flow of water and because there's so many factors i think they used uh monte carlo experiments to kind of come up with like the way i think they just like cleverly randomized how the you know the, the like i mean you obviously have boundary conditions you know certain things you know water flows downwards because of gravity and that but like they 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 um like randomized a lot of uh the the way the actual like whatever particles or whatever you're tracking there right um and that created a simulation of water flowing that was a lot better than you know as, as this also says that what humans could come up with by observing things because you you observe water flowing and the actual underlying um like physics and math is very complicated i mean i think this is also why this talks about like fluids you know how if you actually um 
I mean, for example, you can do in uh, computer graphics, you can do ray tracing, right? So ray tracing is the idea that that you simulate light in a in a computer engine in a game or whatever, um, like actual light, right? So you don't create a system that looks like natural lighting. You actually kind of simulate how light waves go from like you know the light source to an object and how they would bounce off the object based on its pro- its um like properties right its physical properties kind of but you can do that because like it's light's relatively simple it goes like in a straight line right and it it there's well understood like in optics there's well understood like refraction all that you can mathematically like for a given uh, a material you can you can calculate the refraction and all that whereas water is like well, right, it's like one thing, one water molecule bounces to the next, and it's just like it's like chaotic, which is why they use some like it's Monte Carlo methods, I guess. Anyway, we also have simulated annealing, and that has a very bad um, abbreviation. Uh, simulated annealing, SA, is a probabilistic technique for approximating the global optimum of a given function. Specifically, this seems to be a problem that needs to be solved a lot. Global optimum, specifically. Um, oh no, the other thing was the global maximum. It's very different, right? Okay. Um, specifically, it is a meta heuristic to approximate global optimization uh, in a large search search space for an optimization problem. Okay. It is often used when the search space is discrete. For example, the traveling salesman problem. The Boolean satisfiability problem, protein structure prediction, and job shop scheduling. Uh, for problems where finding an approximate global optimum is more important than finding a precise local optimum in a fixed amount of time, simulated annealing, annealing may be prefer- preferable to exact algorithms such as gradient descent or branch and bound. The name of the algorithm comes from annealing and met- metallurgy, a technique involving heating and controlled cooling of a material to alter its physical properties. Um, isn't that what they used, what they did like with guns? Like those, you know, this uh, Civil War era revolvers where they like, when, when it turns like this beautiful, like almost like there's like um, petrol on water kind of shade because like they, they heated it and cool it to make it stronger. I think that's annealing. Um, both are attributes of the material, um, both are attributes of the material that depend on their thermodynamic free energy. Heating and cooling the material affects both the temperature and the thermodynamic free energy or Gibbs energy. Simulated annealing can be used for very hard computation optimization problems where exact algorithms fail, even though it is usually, even though it usually sorry, even though it usually achieves an appropriate solution to the global minimum could be enough for many practical problems. The problems solved by SA <clears throat> are currently formulated by, by an objective function of many variables subject to several constraints. In practice, the constraint can be penalized as part of the objective function. Uh, all right. So it's you do something to data, you heat it and cool it, and then you find like uh, a local optimum, right? Um, so yeah 
protein structure. I mean, when they when they mean discrete search space, you have uh, a a known uh, amount of things that can happen, right? So, in I, I know a little bit about protein structure prediction. So you have genes, right, and these genes uh, um, encode proteins, right. Um, so your genes in your DNA, your DNA gets taken apart, gets read out, uh, and and you have uh, you know uh, things that that basically go along the well the DNA gets turned into and whatever, but like it that's you know uh, that go along these uh, the, the the DNA and read it out and they create on the other end they create like pro- parts of proteins and the structure of the proteins is you know, uh, a function of like how they fold, like on the, the molecular structure of these proteins means that they fold in a certain way. But so you, you have, um, you have known factors, right? So you have the genes and you want to predict what the protein looks like, which is important for all kinds of drug. If you want to create drugs and all kinds of things. Um, fight cancer and this is why you know the, the SETI at home back in the day they also had like protein folding at home because it's like it's a you have a, a discrete you have a, a, a set uh, amount of possibilities you're looking at a certain um, you know a, a combination of amino acids uh, you know TCGGACs you know uh, and, and it, it so you you have you know you know what 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 part of the DNA you're looking at, but you don't know what kind of protein it makes. And there is the, the folding is not something you can go, okay, if it's TCGA, GGAAT, uh, it's going to look like that. It's like um, you, can, you can determine it, it's, it's deterministic, but you have a lot of possibilities. Like, you know, some of the stuff just doesn't work, doesn't fold, whatever. So you have to go through that. And I guess this is an algorithm where. Um, instead of like you have instead of brute forcing um, like whatever say you have 10 million probabilities probably low but like you have you know you have a set amount of, of, of things that you have to try to figure out what is like the most like, likely kind of protein like structure that comes out of this thing at the end um, instead of just brute forcing it you know like with thousands of computers and a study at home kind of thing uh, you're actually uh, trying to do this uh, by by probability and saving time and money um, because there's probably uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands of of, of um, like folding uh, results that are very unlikely that don't work because you you have things that like that theoretically could fold like that but they wouldn't have any function right. Um, and we know we know that, but you also you can't look at the DNA and go, okay, this like you can't simply go this results and that. You basically have to run through it, and then you're like, okay, this is unusable. Uh, this this won't work. This won't be a protein. This will fall apart. This mon- molecule doesn't work that way. So you basically do machine learning, and you, you instead of running through it all, you just uh, you know you see what's most probable and then i think generally in with these things you just uh you have a huge set of data and you just uh reducing that like you're taking 
um, you know, 90% of that or whatever, or 99% of it is, is relatively un improbable. And then you just have to run through the 1% and suddenly you only have to do like a 10,000 calculations instead of like a few billion or whatever, how many it is. I, I don't know. Um, that's what I, how I understand how this works. And then our last uh, X course here is something that goes back to biology as well as evolutionary algorithms. Uh, in computational intelligence, CI, in evolutionary algorithm, EA. EA Sports. It's in the game. It's a subset of evolutionary computation, uh, gen generic population-based me meta-heuristic optimization algorithm. And EA uses mechanisms, mechanisms inspired by biological evolution, such as reproduction, mutation, recombination, and selection. Candidate solutions to the optimization problem play the role of individuals in a population and the fitness function determines the quality of the solutions. See also loss function. Evolution of the population then takes place after the repeated application of the above operators. This is something actually I had heard about years ago, which I always found um, um, fascinating, where basically you... I don't... I don't know if it's the same approach still, but basically where you... you, you you're trying to solve a problem and you're trying to fi find the best the the most um efficient algorithm to do it but you don't really know how so you kind of write algorithms uh that that you write a few that that do what you want to do in different ways um and then you basically have a you have these algorithms battle it out like in an evolutionary thing right you have you have a system that measures how good these algorithms do what they're supposed to do and then changes them a little bit you know like a, a mutation which you don't need as you know it's not like um intelligent design where god sits there and says okay we need to change it like this no you do it automatically like evolution does it like by chance you just change something on the algorithm and then if it doesn't work at all it you know it dies it gets discarded but um if it if it if if it's quicker, then you're like, oh, this is evolutionary better, and it's fitter, and it's we are gonna use that as a basis for for other mutations. Basically, if it's um, if it's good, it can have more children, more algorithms that that are derived from it, and then you breed the good algorithms, and you have little algorithm children, and then they get better and better. At least that's how I, you know, years, I mean, this must have, been, must have been like in the 2000s sometime. I think this was when I was in school in Australia. I read about this uh, when we were doing programming in school. I found this um, extremely fascinating. Uh, evolutionary algorithms often have, I mean, this is also science fiction stories about this. This is how the AI becomes self-aware, right? Once we let it loose and, you know, basically let evolutionary factors work on it. Um because the downside is that, of course, human evolution, uh, or not human, but biological evolution, human evolution as well, but biological evolution is at a time scale of like hundreds of thousands of years, right? You can't observe it because it's so slow. Whereas in a computer, you can have a, you know, where we have a generation every 25 years, a computer can have a generation, you know, uh, every 25 nanoseconds or whatever. Um so they'll be much quicker, and then they'll be much smarter than us, much quicker, and then we'll dead. Uh, uh, evolutionary algorithms often perform well approximating solutions to all types of problems because they idly, ideally do not make any assumption about the underlying fitness landscape, right? They just, they, they, you just evaluate them 
on certain criteria, right? But the, 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 it's it, like evolution. It's it's driven by chance, so it doesn't need to know anything about the problem. It just needs to know how to evaluate if something is good at something. Right? Is it surviving? And then it will just go from there. So uh, what we're learning is that nature basically uh, is doing machine learning with <laughs> with biological uh, species. Techniques from evolutionary algorithms applied to the modeling of biological evolution are generally limited to explorations of microevolutionary processes and planning models based upon cellular processes. In most real applications of EAs, computational complexity is a prohibiting factor. In fact, its computational complexity is due to fitness function evaluation. Fitness approximate is one of the solutions to overcome this difficulty. However, seemingly simple EA can solve complex problems. Therefore, there may be no direct link between algorithm complexity and problem complexity. So what they're trying to say is that nature is a lot better because it does like lots of evolution in parallel, right? It doesn't go like, okay, uh, like what do you need to, like do you need, what's your skin have to look like, like? to live somewhere like the are feathers better or hairs or whatever just like like on all scales like what what are teeth how do good teeth work how do i like eyes work like it does all this like in in massively parallel so i think douglas adams was right the planet is a huge computer is what we're learning at the end of this so what we've learned is that fab's not as smart as the listeners think that fab is smart uh we've learned that uh ai is bullshit it's called machine learning and machine learning is basically statistics uh and we learned that uh nature is running a huge uh machine learning um experiment which is why we don't have to i'm i'm with george carlin again we don't have to worry about global warming it's all just part of the process it's you know it's all just part of nature uh discarding this branch of the <laughs> of the model <laughs> our branch <laughs> which will be gone in a few hundred years um unless we actually do go to mars um anyway uh and the belt we have to go to the belt and then we have all completely different problems and have to eat yeast anyway read the expanse uh then it continues uh, after all this this was all from wikipedia and we're back to Bennett. Uh, neural networks are on, on the same level, in air quotes, as everything I've just listed, but much of what you talked about only applies to them. For example, some of these require a decent understanding of how the model of how to model the underlying problem. Some are not even far away from literally modeling physics equations and software, but are used when we either don't have a full understanding of the problem or exact calculations would be too expensive. They often do not have the weird edge cases that we see in NNs on neural networks. They also mostly work with small amount with small amount of training data in exchange for understanding of the problem space. Crucially, so if we with other words, if we understand what we're trying to do, we don't need that many that much training data. Um, Crucially, many of these approaches are very much explainable and they may yield predictable outcomes once deployed in the field. What Bennett means by that is they're explainable in a scientific sense. Um, I think as we just learned from reading these Wikipedia articles, um, a lot of that is not explainable. 
<laughs> at least not to somebody who hasn't studied. And I am pretty sure I wouldn't even like I could go to like I have this thing, my brain has this thing which is probably well, it is it is training. I just hated math so much much in school that I've trained my brain to just shut off. Like I could literally sit in a in a in a in a seminar on this shit and my brain I would just go I would just sit there and my brain would just go me the whole time. Um, whereas you sit you sit me down in, in, in some random seminar about something biological or, you know, some obscure history lesson about the uh uh you know about the early uh, years of the mesopotamian empire which i don't know, know nothing about and i go this is fascinating and I, i'll suck it all up or like even you know like i have the same problem with physics when it was just pure physics my, my brain would just zone out but when it's like spacecraft and getting things in space and uh and gravitational stuff and i'm like okay this makes actually sense like this i can see where i basically have to see where the application is and um with machine learning i mean i i see it but like my brain just goes turns off when it comes to this so yeah it's explainable in air quotes uh neural networks tend to be used when we no longer have an understanding of how to solve the underlying problem and in and indeed amounts to brute force um, I think a lot of the stuff we just read out is also like isn't uh, kind of asking Bennett here or just asking into the into the room um, isn't um, unob- like uh, un um, what am I trying to say here? Um, there's t- too many too many these these complicated words have run a DDoS on my brain. Also, I've worked a lot today already, so this is late in the evening. I'm recording it. So my brain is a bit, um, yeah, a bit, a bit text right now. Um, what I'm trying to say is, um, isn't isn't that the case uh, when we do unsu? Isn't that always the case when we do unsupervised learning? Like, isn't that always brute force? Because um, I don't know even if we have an understanding to solve like we, the, the the underlying problem we're not like interacting with the model right where supervised uh learning is like we know what we're looking for hmm. i don't know or maybe that is just a function of how much data we have um anyway um, neural networks tend to be used when we no longer have an understanding of how to solve the underlying problem and indeed amounts to brute force. They do work very well in areas where the above approaches fail. Oh, so the above approaches are the opposite. Okay, Especially image recognition, which causes caused their revival about 15 years ago. Uh, they had been discovered and abandoned before the AI winter. And um, I'm going to talk about what the AI winter is in a minute. Uh, winter's coming. Brace yourself, AI researchers. Uh, maybe there will be another AI winter soon and people will shut up about this shit. <laughs> um, yeah, so as far as I understand that, when we do self-driving cars and we want to do image recognition, we do not know how to teach a computer to solve this problem. Right? Like, we don't know how, like, we translate pixels uh, in a database, like, you know, having a sensor 
light sensor that gets pixels and how we translate that into recognizing like a person because the the problem is so complex right the, there's all these it could the person could be lit very differently you know that it depends on what it looks what the person looks like in three-dimensional space and all, all this shit and we don't know how to solve that but that's why we use neural networks okay so the ai winter uh, wikipedia says about the ai winter and uh, there's a wikipedia article about this private system not press you can read all this if, you, if you're fed up with me reading things badly uh, in the history of artificial intelligence, an AI winter is a period of reduced funding and interest in artificial intelligence research. The term was coined by analogy to the idea of a nuclear winter. The field has experienced several hype cycles, followed by disappointment and criticism, followed by funding cuts, followed by renewed interest years or even decades later. I actually didn't know that. There's something I'm learning here. Uh, the term first appeared in 1984 one year after I was born, as the topic of a public debate at the annual meeting of the AAAI, then called the American Association of Artificial Intelligence. It is a chain reaction that begins with pessimism in the AI community, followed by pessimism in the press, followed by a severe cutback in, cutback in funding, followed by the end of serious research. At the meeting, Roger Shank and Marvin Minsky, I've actually heard that name before, two leading AI researchers who had survived the winter of the 1970s, warned the business community that enthusiasm for AI had spiraled out of control in the 1980s, and that disappointment would certainly follow. Three years later, the billion-dollar AI industry began to collapse. Uh, isn't enthusiasm for AI just spiraling out of control right now. I'm predicting the new AI winter now. Brace yourselves. Actually, I'm going to use that. Uh, I, I didn't have, uh, you know, uh, I have a, a picture that, you know, obviously, um, uh, I, I, you don't really see when you, you just listen to the podcast and it's not on the website, but it's like the, the teaser image when I post something on social network, like I have this, this image um, that I, you know, I, I uh, run through an algorithm so it looks a bit different. I'm always a bit unrecognizable. Well, it's kind of like, you know, I have a graphic effect I put on there. And I'm going to use um, NetStark for this one, uh, I think, because uh, the AI winter is coming. Brace yourselves. Um, right. Hype is common in many emerging technologies. That, that is certainly true. Such as the railway mania or the dot-com bubble. Or anything, really. Anything the press writes about. The AI winter was a result of such hype due to overinflated promises by developers. Hmm, where have I heard that before? Unnaturally high expectations from end users. Hmm, cars that don't crash and drive themselves. An extensive promotion and extensive promotion in the media. Despite the rise and fall of AI's reputation, it has continued to develop new and successful technologies. I, okay, AI... Citation needed. Wikipedia. AI researcher Rodney Brooks would complain in 2002 that, quote, there's the stupid myth out there that AI has failed, but AI is around in every second of the day. I think the problem here is the name, right? I'm sure there's lots of computational um, advances that are basically AI, but if you're calling it artificial intelligence, you idiots. Uh, people will expect something that is as smart as a human because that's what intelligence is, right? Or at least as smart as a cat. 
You, you got to get to the cat level. Otherwise, you can't call it intelligence. So that's your problem right there, your fucking name, because names are important. Uh, in 2005, Ray Kurz, Kurzweil agreed. Oh, not fucking Kurzweil. Many observers still think that the AI winter was the end of the story and that nothing since has come out of the AI field yet today. Many th thousands of AI applications are deeply embedded in the infrastructure of every industry. Yeah, yeah, whatever. St statistics. You Basically, you're just talking about statistics. So just, let's just call it statistics, all right? And then we won't have a hype. And then we won't have disappointment. Uh, your overall is, oh, uh, we are back to, <laughs> we are back to Bennett. <clears throat> Sorry. Your overall assessment and conclusion, however, are in no way impeded by these subtleties. I think you did a great job of grasping the inherent limitations and problems. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I, I'm trying. Um, as I as I'm as I'm doing with this episode, uh, and especially the societal implications, which we should definitely not leave to the experts anymore than we should have during the COVID pandemic. I um can't agree more so so bennett um obviously speaks german uh, our language provides the very fitting term fachidioten for me to insert here um this is yes this is a very good term that doesn't exist in english i tried my best to appropriate uh, to uh, approach it with the uh, episode title uh, specialized idiots that's why fach uh idiot idiot means idiot um so idioten is the plural. Um, Fach uh, in this case means um, like a field, field of business, field, field of knowledge. So what this means is people that uh, are very smart uh, and know a lot in their field, right? Um, but who are nonetheless idiots because if you if you put them, for example, if you put them in the government, you know, there could be there could be healthcare. Like, there could be virologists, right? Like our good friend, uh, Dr. Drosten. Um, they, could, they could know a lot of, uh, it, like, the, the, so you have a virus outbreak. Let's take the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. Um, you have a virus outbreak, and so you take the preeminent expert on this virus, by which we mean uh, he's, a, he's a doctor. Or it could be a biologist. That would actually have been bad. Is the guy a biologist? Is it? I think he's a medical doctor, I think. I'm going to have to look this up now. It's been so long since I look at Dr. Drosten. He was out of my brain. Now I'm, I see his fucking smiling face. Let me see. Uh, doctor of medicine. Okay, so I'm not a biologist. That explains everything. <laughs> fucking doctors of medicine trying their hands about it. Anyway, so you have a virus outbreak. And you take a preeminent... Um, specialist on this virus right he knows he knows how this virus replicates he knows what the protein structure looks like he, kn he knows their rna he knows everything about the virus and then you uh effectively putting him put him in charge of um like you ask him things that you would normally ask an epidemiologist which this guy already knows nothing about because that's not his field right that's like um um Let's say you are a JavaScript front-end programmer. You write uh, web applications for a company um, in JavaScript. And they go, well, you know programming, all right? So we have this problem with this NASA probe. And uh, we need you to write a program to make it land on the moon. And, and you go, okay, so uh, does it use JavaScript? 
And they go, no, um, it uses assembly language, right? So we want you, the JavaScript programmer who writes front-end applications for the web, uh, to write a um, an, an algorithm in uh, you know that makes this the, that calculates you know velocities and gravity and then you know uh, implement it in assembler and uh yeah that's kind of you know um and what fuck idiot basically means is that you could well, being a fuck idiot um a uh, highly specialized idiot right um it means that you can be a genius in your field but that doesn't mean that you can solve other problems right that mean that doesn't mean that you're a good politician or um or you know it's it's the the, the other things of course um so you don't see the forest for all the trees um when you're very close to a problem you often don't see the uh the overarching like societal impact of something um, and this is something i've i've dealt with for a long time because i'm more of a um, I mean, I'm a nerd. I like technology, but I'm more of a like. That's why I became a journalist, not a programmer. I'm less interested in actually. Um, when somebody tells me about an interesting programming problem or like an algorithm like this, um, I'm 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 not the guy like the programmer nerds who go like, "Oh, this is amazing! You do this with the, and then you 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 tra- you, you you transform the string into that, and you copy it there, and you do this." I'm more like, "What does that mean?" for society like if if you built this what does that mean and um, that's you know why i became a journalist that's why i like to do this like try to you know explain thoughts to people and try to explain very uh complicated technological things to like a normal mainstream audience and the problem is that 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 these fucking don't often do that because like by virtue of the fact uh, yeah, this is not blaming them. This is just like how humans work, right? You are very specialized. You you work um, at something, and you're surrounded by people doing the same thing. And you you all have this very focus. You don't even think about um, like uh, certain like implications and how how this like uh, if affects the majority of of people. Right, and and this is something I ran into all the time doing podcasts back in the day when I did a Linux podcast. Um, like I was always like on the side of like the the user, right? I'm 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 I was uh, excited for Linux because as a user I liked its possibilities, and I, I think open source is cool. I think you know writing software in an open source way is a cool way. It's a good way to write software. I talked a little bit about that uh, in the last episode. Um, but uh, to me, like I was talking to people who were very passionate about free software and whatever, and open source, and they were like, to them, like I was talking to a lot of people to, to, to whom like free software in itself was also like a, a raison d'etre, like, you know, a reason in itself. Um, and I, w- I was always like, yeah, but what does that do to me as a user, right? What do I care that, the, that this is open source? Um, and that you know, there are certainly then you can you can you can have a discussion, and you can uh, work 
you know, you can talk about things and you're like, oh yeah, this is actually cool. This leads to that. And that means that users can do this. And that means that if we have a problem, we can all fix it together and we don't have to wait for some guy at Microsoft, right, to, to fix it. So that's cool, right? That's good. Um, but they don't even think about those things, right? They're so, like, they're, they're all just like, if, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I remember talking to, uh, uh, talking to a good friend uh, Br Bradley Kuhn uh, a lot about who he was very passionate about GPL violations and you know about the legal intricacies which I found fascinating um, but like there were like these situations when he's like oh yeah it's a GPL and it does this and I'm like yeah and and, and um, so basically who cares <laughs> right um, like What's that mean? Like, if a if a company violates the GPL in a router, um, what does that mean to me? Like, you know, if somebody's suing them. Will that make my router better? And then you can have a discussion. And actually, yeah, in the end, maybe it has a uh, a net impact on society, but like uh, a good impact or whatever. But like these people don't. They're so into whatever they do that they don't even like think about that. Um, And I'm surrounded by a lot of those people. And, um, I mean, Faridioten is a very derogative term, um, but I think, you know, all good. Like, I I enjoy, um, for example, talking to uh, what I like to call actual scientists. You know, there's lots of people calling them scientists. There are lots of people who are doing science, in air quotes. Um, but many people do science, you know, for companies or, you know, to have... Uh, at the end a, a company benefits um especially like in the medicine and biology field and i respect a lot of people who just do basic research um and they they're the most they're the biggest fuck idiot ever right so um they 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 will tend they don't really care about the implications you know they're just they're very uh very uh i i really enjoy being with those people uh, and talking to them they're very um like selfless people in a way, right? They just want to know, what does this protein do, right? They're not the guys from the pharma industry who go like, yeah, how can we make money? They don't care. They just want, they just want to know what it does. Um, and I, I'm married to such a person. I'm not saying she's a, a fucking idiot, but like uh, she's very smart and uh, uh, also uh, looks over the, over the horizon a bit more than other people, I think. But um in the end, she is one of these very highly specialized people who just doesn't really, you know, um, I mean, she has the end goal inside. She wants to help people. And like, we're researching this because, you know, people get sick and, and we need to understand how the system works. Otherwise, like the other people who want to monetize everything or whatever, um, they, they have no chance of even knowing where to start. But like in the beginning, you have to have people who are just like, what the fuck does this protein do? We just discovered this protein. Like what? It's in the heart. What does it do? It's just, it's there. We don't know what it does. Hmm. Let's create a, a, a mouse model where the mouse doesn't make that protein. And then let's see what happens to the mouse. And also let's make it glow green in the night because that's kind of cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is kind of, you know, that's, um, that's, the, that's the other side. But I think what Bennett says is that we can't, it's very dangerous to have these people Uh, decide things for society because um, somebody who's an epidemiologist who looks at the risk of virus outbreaks who tries to minimize virus outbreaks um, and the, the the risk to people you can do that but it's not necessarily the best for society because this guy is just trained and looking at 
how can we minimize that? He he isn't looking at, well, will that actually tank the fucking economy and actually later on cause a lot more suffering um, because f- people will get fucking lose their jobs and, and will not be able to pay their rent and it, it, the, the state will go fucking bankrupt because of this and, you know, we'll, we'll have societal strife and then we have, uh, you know... Yeah, bad things. I'm not. I'm, I nearly said we have people invading other countries because, I, but I don't think that was because of that. But like you know, it's um, they don't have that overview. And I think, I think what Bennett says, what I was saying, which I guess I was saying, but it's good that we are talking about this. You know, having feedback because I think this helps me refining this point. Is my fear. Um, I'm not afraid of like algorithm, whatever. Um, I'm afraid of um, putting people in charge who who um, who who are these kind of fachidioten who are so close to the matter that they're not looking at. So they um, uh, a good example is to me always is like self-driving cars um i mean I've, I've had email discussion with people like i don't like driving and i think self-driving cars are a good idea i mean that's a opinion to have my opinion is completely different but my my thing's always like there are so many of these these specialized idiots going this is how we make a car drive this is how we we let a computer drive a car and there's too little people going why why We've been driving cars for 120 years. People can do that. It's like, it's, I mean, it's a convenient thing, but why are we pouring all this? Should, shouldn't we use all this brain energy and computational energy to solve other problems? Like, is that really the problem we need to solve? It's a problem that is already solved. That was solved with the invention of the car. They put a steering wheel in it. They taught people how to use it. It works. Some people even have fun doing it. Let them drive. <laughs> you know, let me drive. Pay me for driving. Give me a fast car. Um, right? That's the kind of like uh, the, the 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 kind of. Uh, it's like the same with blockchain. There's so many fucking fachidioten who go like, yeah, it's cool technology. It kind of is cool technology. But the question is, do we need it? Do we need it for this application? There's a very few specific applications that it's actually useful for. But it gets sold and probably used in places where you're like, this makes no fucking sense. There are not enough people going, hmm, this is actually makes sense. <laughs> like on a, on a broader scale. Um, yeah, anyway. Um, back to Bennett. So... Many of the technical limitations you discussed only apply to neural networks. An important point, which you briefly came close to discussing, is the fundamental limitation of the entire field. Actually, don't remember that. Which I'm sure will interest you on a philosophical level. Nothing in the field is capable of generating new causality information. These systems cannot learn why, only what. Sometimes we need to provide that, and sometimes it's bypassed, ethically amounting to nothing more than fancy statistics. Exclamation point. Um, yeah, exactly. And see, this is also like the, you know, um, I mean, I, th- I think this is a problem not only with, with 
uh, neural networks um, or machine learning or the whole AI field. Uh, this is a general problem with science. You know, in science, um, a lot of people are just researching what. And that's important, right? So, but to me, that's only the first step, right? So, back to the example of that protein. We just discovered that protein. We have to figure out what. What's it like? What's it look like? Um, and how, how does it work? But that's only the first step. The second step is why. And there's a lot of, like, um, I guess that is why I never really like mathematics because, I mean, not all of mathematics, but like a lot of it, especially the stuff you learn in school, is just what? It's never why. Why are we doing this? Why? Differential equations, why? And there is a why, but you never get taught that, right? Um, and and I guess you can say that for every field. Like people with, um, who teach history badly, they, they also just go, what? Like the important thing about history is why, right? I don't, okay, yeah, it's like every science, as first you have to learn what, like I have to learn about the Third Reich and Hitler and, and everything. And, but the, the, the question that keeps you up at night is why? Like, why the fuck did that guy do that? Why did people believe, like, why did they follow him? That is, that is the, that is the question, like, you know, yeah, the Roman Empire collapsed. The, impre- the, the, the It's not, I mean, it, it's fascinating what happened, but a lot more fascinating is why. Why did it collapse? Why? And that's what, like, in my mind, real scientists try to answer. Um, and um, the kind of, like, the more I look at things, um, the, whenever I have problems with science, uh, and scientific research, it's often that, um, right? It's uh, It stops at, we have man-made global warming. You know, it stops at the data and saying, okay, we've proven it now. That's not the interesting part. The interesting part is why. Why do we have man-made global? Like, what did what actually happened what's called like specifically how is it caused like really on a granular level like that's the question we're not answering they all stop at it's happening so we need to prevent it i'm not arguing with that but i think real science always asks asks why um right and that i often have it's like people like eating eating red meat will give you cancer and then they stop it and then they're like you start should stop eating meat but the question like this is the ask the next question why how how does it do that how do i get what is the pros and i often these days um which is a problem sometimes i will not like even believe like so so for example um like i will not like believe the 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 study or whatever the data if it doesn't tell me how 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 does it do that like basically the why right so so if i have a study and the study uh, is is a well uh researched and well designed experiment that says um masks stop 
the the spread of of SARS-CoV-2. Ninety-nine point nine percent of people, all of the journalists will just go right. We're going to run with that. That's awesome. Everybody wear a mask. Um, I mean, the journalists won't even like look at if the study's okay. They just go, oh, a study says. <laughs> uh, but okay, um, the good journalists go, yeah. Um, so that's so the study is obviously uh, is, 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 is well designed. Um, you know, there are there are good controls in here. This this all makes sense. This adheres to scientific uh, principles. It is it is well thought out. It is um, it is probable. It it all seems solid. But to me, that's almost worthless because you have billions of studies like this uh, right now. Um, and and I want to understand, as a journalist, I want to understand why. Like how specifically, I don't want to, I don't want some st- some statistic data on, on, oh, well, this prevents the spread of SARS-CoV-2. I want to know how, how, like how big's the fucking molecules? How big are the holes in the in the mask? How many of these molecules get through those holes? Like, what's the percentage? What's that mean? Uh, you know, if you have a if it reduces like thirty seven percent of particles going through, what does that actually mean? How many particles do you need to infect them? Like, that's what I want to know. That is the important, and and that's the hard part, right? This is why lots of people don't do that. Uh, it's quicker to do that first part and then uh, do a press release and everybody jumps on it and then you're the hero and then you don't have to do the second part anymore. And there's not enough people doing the second part. There's not enough people asking the question, why? Um, yeah. So yes, <laughs> this um, this interests me a lot uh, on a philo- philosophical level, but also on a practical level, I think. Um this pra- on a practical level this is um like it permeates everything like you know that's how governments decide things right they commission a study and now because everybody's like oh this has got to be science based we're so uh so we're a secular state even though we're not uh <laughs> but like you know we're the it's all science based science tm science 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 but it's only that like collecting data and going oh this is just statistical probability that this blah 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 basically you're running a that that's how this works right there's a machine learning algorithm runs over that and then nobody wants to understand why and that's the important thing and and i see like this dystopian unit i'm playing i'm playing a video game right now uh, called uh, warmer 40k dark tide which is a great game and um so uh, in playing that i'm getting back into the 40k universe which is a universe i love and i know a lot about but it's like that is like a dystopian future that is characterized by this um galaxy spanning imperium of man where where humans are they're running the whole galaxy they they they, they invented fast and light travel they invented all these technologies but then the imperium fell into a dark age which is basically the middle ages model after that and they forget about everything and they don't ask why anymore. They just know that this machine, if you press these buttons, it kind of works. And then they pray, and then they have like some incense and and uh, holy oils, and they say a prayer to the machine god, uh, praise be the omniscient that my computer doesn't crash during recording of this podcast. Um, and that's how they run everything. And I see, like, I see us going that direction. 
Right? That's the that's like the um, that's like even worse than the caste system, right? In the in the 40k universe, nobody knows how the things work anymore. Um, and and they have these machines that build like, for example, tanks. And they have like the standard pattern construct things, which are like very smart people built back in a few thousand years ago, which are just machines that just churn. Let's imagine you you have a machine that just you you put steel in one end and leopard two tanks come on the other end, and it's amazing. And it's very quick, and you can build a lot of tanks. But then we forget how it works, and and uh, you know it works. So you can kind of pray to it, and and have oils like bomb, bomb, you know, rub the oils in, and it works. But at the moment where it breaks down, you're basically fucked because you don't understand how it works. And and this is kind of where this goes when you have like these these neural networks, and we don't fucking know how they work, or we even know how they work, but it's kind of arcane. It's all just statistical analysis, and nobody asks why anymore. And nobody's thinking philosophically anymore. They're just like computer says yes. You know that that is extremely worrying. Um, basically, we either we provide causality information and the algorithm figures out a way to work with that, or we bypass it and do pattern matching on observations, which is very dangerous. I think generally, I think this is why I want humans involved. I know that you know enough to see the implied ethical problems. Yes, um, I do. Because, I mean, you know, you, you, that, that's like the perfect Vulcan state. Like, I've always said that in Star Trek, the thing they never um, pursued, which is an amazing, would be an amazing storyline. There's a, there's an, like, I mean, there were some episodes who skirted it, but because the, the Vulcans are always seen as the good guys, they never really did this. But you could write, like, you could write a whole series about this, right? So Vulcans are really scary because lo logic is a very scary thing, right? This, this, the good of the many outweighs the good of the few is extremely scary if you're the few, right? And you could have a simple episode where, like, the captain is incapac incapacitated and you know the science officer the vulcan who's like the whatever you know captain is killed the first officer is incapacitated and the third officer who's like a vulcan science officer uh, is now in command of the ship and has to make a very hard decision and basically condemns uh some of his best friends and crewmates to die um in horrible in a horrible way uh, to save the ship and that would be a very interesting Star Trek ethical dilemma. And and you could really bring out this, the cruelty of logic, right? Where if you look at it from a society perspective, yeah, sure. Um, you know, if you can say, if, uh, if you can, like, this is like World War II level war shit. Like if you can kill 10,000 people to save like several million, um, when you look at it from a historic perspective, uh, history will probably say you're right. Um, but in the instance of those, actually those 10,000 people you killed, where there's like, they have, hus you know, they have kids, they have wives, um, they have friends, um, they will never have children, you know, th there's all this drama and, and, and sadness that, that is there, um, that, you know, that, and, and that's the kind of, society we're going towards if we actually have these algorithms on basically statistical probability decide things that are good right and and and, and yes statistically they're good for the majority whatever that doesn't mean 
um you know there are like I think I said in this episode when you have like the trolley problem or whatever you're like um, you're deciding who to kill in a situation um, I'd rather have a human make a bad decision than than an AI make a good one I don't know why that is but to me as a human that just feels better like this is also a very Star Trek thing this is something that Kirk would say like Kirk would say to, to Spock he would say this makes no sense I know this makes no sense, but it's the right call, right? It's it's better for a human emotionally to make an incorrect decision um, than than for a Vulcan or a computer to make the logical one without emotion, because uh, the the computer or the Vulcan doesn't know how the humans that are affected by this feel, whereas like the guy who makes the wrong decisions is at least can be em- empathic, right? Um, yeah philosophically this is fascinating to me Um, which is why I like what Bennett says next Um, uh, I know that you know enough to see the implied ethical problems for this if this interests you yes it does (laughs) I've talked about this for almost two hours now Uh, I can recommend this great book uh, The Book of Why The New Science of Cause and Effect by Judea Pearl and Dana McKenzie, and this book's already on my Kindle, and I'll be reading it. Um, uh, it sounds fascinating. Thank you for the tip. Uh, and if you want the link, uh, Private Citizen Press. Uh, the f- first chapter alone is worth a read. Anyway, thank you for your podcast. We disagree on several issues. We're close on others, but we always meet at careful thinking and learning. Keep asking the next question. Thank you. Um, yes. Um, you probably have a response to this bullshit I just um, you know uh, spouted out there so you know if you're on a write in again uh, please please feel free Bennett I, I appreciated this email very much which I, which is why I gave it um, its own episode um, I think it's very important and I want to want to just show other um, listeners and other producers um, what this can do if you provide feedback of course you can also like if you if you don't want your stuff read out or you don't want your name attached to it, you can you can say so, and I will of course respect that. Um, I value feedback a lot more than content for the show because it helps me. Like even if I can't talk about it on the show, even if it's just behind the scenes, which happens a lot, you know, I also have a lot of conversations with uh, listeners and and producers that I don't talk about on the show because I think I should or because they say so. Um, but those are as valuable. Like they provide insight. They help me gauge what people find interesting, how people think about things. Um, because basically, what I'm trying to do is like you know, make this useful for everybody, which is kind of hard. You kind of have to like. I'm I'm trying not to be a specialist idiot, a fuck idiot. And you know, if you're writing and you're helping me anyway, uh, I want to also give uh, some airtime to another producer. So uh, let's talk a little bit about additional feedback I've received. So referencing episode 132, um, which was the Twitter episode, uh, the the previous episode, uh, RedeemerF, that's Fadi, uh, says on the forum, 
Uh, yes, there's a lot of hype around individuals. We're talking about Musk and Twitter now. Um, also, you raise a correct point regarding the pros and cons of employment laws. Um, I'm now leaning more towards smaller government, which means lower controls, which might mean less humane. But for me, the question is always, what will be the cost of the increased controls? And I feel like I'm, I'm leaning to that as well. Um, somebody you know from Germany who comes from a country that traditionally has more like bigger government like you know we have a very uh big bureaucracy that i sometimes think probably served as the inspiration for the administratum in warhammer 40k um so yeah um and that it has benefits right the state having healthcare and all that and, and employment laws and it has benefits but it also has downsides and i think um yeah, that is an interesting. Maybe because I have that, I feel, you know, you always want what you don't have, right? Um, you know, people who don't have uh, curly hair want straight hair and the other way around and all that. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's kind of like, maybe it's that, you know, that I, that I just uh, desire a little less... Uh, government a little less state intrusion uh, but and also i think it's it's it has gotten worse and um not because of i i think you know uh, in the last two to three years uh, especially in germany we've seen a lot of like government um encroaching on private life where it before hasn't and i don't think it that is because it it's now gotten the idea that it wants to do that i i think it Germans and the German government has always wanted to do that. I think they just didn't have the tools necessarily um, so much. You know, there's a lot of surveillance surveillance that happens now. There's like um, just more propaganda. I feel um, you know where the the press has traditionally fought against this kind of thing. Now they're like pro, you know, apps that track you because you know the virus um, and stuff like that. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm with you on this, Fadi. And I also had an email. I had an, an email conversation with Fadi um, aside from what he posted on the forum here um, with lots of things that I don't, you know, that's one of the things that I don't want to read out. But he sent me one email and, uh, at the end and I think this is actually um, something I can read out and I should. Um, this is in response to episode 131 as well, you know, like the AI and what it means to government and what we've been talking about. Um, sorry, I just whacked my mic boom there. Um, <laughs> um, so in response to that episode, Fadi said uh, in your email to me, uh, you correctly identified that we're going towards a possible dangerous future. Here's a very different uh, take on this episode, but also, um, well, it, yeah, it's different, but it's it's also very valid, I think. Um, you correctly identified that we are going towards a possibly dangerous future because of technology. I've always been a technical person, same here, and I enjoyed the hacker mentality. Me too. And he brings in a um, an aspect that I just like touched on. Uh, you spoke about the caste system, and this reminds me of cyberpunk literature, where you have savvy antagonists using their knowledge to gain an edge in life. The vision, of course, is always uh, or usually dystopian, so if you are not like that, then you're part of the amorphous masses controlled by the machine. Not literally, but the government systems, the elite, whatever. And I have a typo in the show notes. Uh, 
uh, that I will have to immediately fix. Um, lamentably, not in my beloved Atom editor because uh, Microsoft killed that. Uh, but I went back to Sublime Text that works as well. Fucking Microsoft. Just wanted to sell that, say that at this point. At least uh, Sublime Text made in Australia. So that's cool. I like that. Um, yeah, the system's the elite, whatever. And so the machine in air quotes, basically. The, the, the bureaucratic machine. And people are only subjects or victims. But cyberpunks usually understand or try to that there's something behind this machine, moving parts that cannot now be manipulated, uh, each for his own goals, food for thought. Uh, it indeed is. And I think this is what I um, refer to at the end at kind of, you know, what I what I would like um, the producers of the show to be like the outsiders, you know, that fall out of this. Uh, you know, in cyberpunk, uh, they're called edge runners or in, in, in lots of cyberpunk literature. Uh, you know, they're the the on the edge, right? They're, they're not the, they're like kind of the freelancers. They're not like the, they don't belong to the corporations, um, and they're not the the sheep, you know, the the sheep that are controlled in cyberpunk. Usually, you know, the government, the the, the machine, the bureaucracy uh, is usually uh, the conglomerate. You know, the government is basically run by big corporations. Anyway, so it's kind of the same thing. Um, and the edge runners are the ones that are making a living on the edge. Now, those people who have to be savvy. Um, those people who, in, in in our case, would understand how AI works. And I think the the whole AI thing. Um, I mean, it's it's been in cyberpunk literature, and it 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 has a bend that fits in there really well. Um, and I think you know the cyberpunk model is a good model to look at, like what it a model, um, you know, what to predict, uh, what uh, the future might be like, um, you know, where you have. Um, computers ai programs um control you know g giving people control over the masses and kind of the way they predicted it in some cyberpunk is basically how it happened you know that the people are walking uh into this willingly because of like you know oh cool now i don't have to drive my car myself or like you know i do everything on my phone because or by voice command because I can't be asked to like wipe my hands when I'm cooking, so I have to to and, and use my phone, which is already you know part of the machine. But no, I have to talk to Alexa and be completely tracked. Now you know people giving up lots of freedoms in the long run for a, a, a little bit of convenience in the short term. Actually, this reminds me of something hilarious that um, I had not expected at all, but um, that I recently written about in my newsletter. Um, so my newsletter on Substack, uh, thesleepyfox.substack.com if you're interested. Um, where I talk a little bit about tech news and recently we had the news that uh, basically um, Alexa doesn't make any money. I like the division that Alexa um, runs under is like the biggest money burner for Amazon and Alexa seems to be one of the biggest uh, offenders where like they're gutting the team now because uh, basically Bezos thought it was a great idea and then at some point lost interest and, and basically they're not monetizing it. It's like a huge, sorry, I'm a bit tired. Oh, it's been a long day. Oh my God. 
um, and I'll run out of Earl Grey, which is the biggest problem. But we are we are almost done. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's it's like it's that's interesting. I thought, that's, but that's neither here nor there. I thought I thought that was interesting news. Yeah, um, thanks thanks for writing in, Bennett and Fadi, and I got some more feedback, but I'm gonna. I think this is enough. We're almost at two hours now, and um, I think I'm gonna wrap up the show. And uh, I have more of the feedback waiting for you in uh, in, in, in upcoming episodes. Uh, but uh, be aware that I'm going to skip a week here because I got things to take care of. So if you want to uh, support the show monetarily, you can do so. Um, you can go to Private Citizen Press. The details are on their Patreon, PayPal. I'm not going to go into that because I want to use this segment today uh, to talk about something completely different. Uh, a little bit of my motivation why I'm doing this. Um, because I've, I've, I've received some feedback also and some some input from people um, and uh, that, that I just want to talk about because it's... it's seems to be a big misunderstanding so um i you know i had some people asking me uh the the most recent occurrence of this was on youtube where i you know usually i stream these things live on twitch right and i have viewers who comment and that's really cool um and uh then i just twitch just records them and because it's relatively little work uh, for me and 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 free i can just um uh, snip off a little bit at the front and the end and then I upload that video from Twitch to YouTube to my YouTube channel because you know some people are, there's a link in the show notes some people like to just watch me watch my face or whatever um, this, this goes back to a Linux Outlaws days where people are like we want a live stream I don't know why but people want this so you know because it's no matter for me I upload this to YouTube like these videos have like 10 to 20 views so no, basically nobody watches them. But I don't care. Because, you know, there's 10 to 20 people who do what. I mean, I understand why people don't watch them. YouTube is not the place to watch two-hour videos of some guy just talking about some philosophical shit that nobody cares about. Um, but there's like 10 to 20 people watching these. And um, I feel like it's a service to those people. Like those people getting out of something out of them. And uh, I don't, uh, it costs cost me nothing, which is why I upload this shit to YouTube. So I had a comment by a guy who was like, why are you doing this? Like, what's your reason to do this? And he was basically commenting, I think, on the viewer numbers. And I said, what do you mean? I mean, I said, aside from the fact that the podcast has literally thousands of listeners, <laughs> um, that's why I'm doing the podcast, if you mean that. But I think doing the video, whatever. And and this is like kind of a misunderstanding, like kind of plays into the Twitter stuff we talked about last time. Like people think that people do this, like people like me do these things, like this podcast, uh, because I want to get famous or rich, right? And uh, I can assure you, um, while getting famous with this, you know, it's kind of like being a journalist, right? Nobody becomes a journalist to become rich. Like anybody who thinks that or does that is really dumb um but you know the fame thing is a is a factor you know people like me who do this kind of thing have a huge ego otherwise we wouldn't do this kind of thing 
But I also know that it's extremely unlikely that I become famous with this. And I really also don't want to, really. I just want to... The, the reason why I do these things, and I think it bears saying once in a while, and I, I think I never said this on the show, which I, is why I want to do that today. Um, the reason why I do this is the reason I do any po- I've ever done any podcast. First of all, I like it. It's fun. Um, I started doing podcasts just to practice my English. And I'm, I'm still doing that. You know, I'm every every week I'm not talking to a native speaker like I did on Links Outlaws, but you know, I'm kind of also beyond that at this point. Um, you know, I watch a lot of English content and I talk to people in English and, and native speakers and stuff. But you know, I also practice my English doing this, and I, I like I like doing it, and it's fun to me. And I do it because I'm for the same reason that I became a journalist. I want to do something that I think is good for society, and that might sound like completely off the like nuts or whatever, but basically that's what I'm doing. Right? I'm doing something that I think is fun, but also that provides a value to people. I, well, I'm saying things that I think need to be said. Specifically things that are, that my colleagues um, in the light media, as we say in German, in, you know, in the mainstream media, the MSM, are not covering enough. We're not talking about enough because they don't have these long form. I love podcasts. You can, you can just talk two hours about bullshit like this. That's you know, that's why I'm doing this. And as long as there's some people who get a value out of this, I think that's worth it. And at this point in my life, you know, I'm t- turning 40 next year. Um, I I realize that I probably will not become famous and I certainly won't become rich, but that's not my goal. My goal in life, if we want to go to that level, which is basically the question that people have asked me when they kind of ask this kind of stuff, is I want to I want to have fun. I want to do what I want to do, but I also kind of that's why I'm a journalist. Want to do things that I think I want to I, I want to make the world a little bit better. Like I want to be a net a good factor, you know, in my life in in in, in society. And and my kind of chosen way I can I can write and I can talk. That's the two things I can do, and I can like. new things are fascinating to me so I think journalism is a great job for me this kind of thing because I look at new things I'm fascinated by them I try to understand them and then I formulate ideas about them I think about them and then then I try to tell people about this and I try to have conversations about this and I think that's really important it's not as important as you know extinguishing fires rescuing people out of burning buildings um, being a being a cardiologist or doing uh, research uh, that saves people's lives in the end, um, but those are all not things that I can do. Um, this is something that I can do, uh, and and that's why I'm doing. It. And I'm not doing it for the fucking numbers, right? Um, if there were only those about thirty people that are signed up on Patreon and give me a little bit of money every month, that basically amounts to currently to like two hundred dollars a month. That's enough for me to do this. I get a little money out of that. Is it worth? Is the is the work I put into into this product? You know, the research, the recording, everything, uh, running the website, all of this. Is is that worth two hundred dollars a month? No, not not according to my usual rates. You know, when I sell things, when I sell my time to people. No, it's definitely not. But I'm not doing it because of that. Um, you know, I'm 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 doing it because people like Bennett, you know, get a kick out of this, gets their brain working. We develop ideas, and and I I, I can talk once in a while. I talk, can talk to really intelligent people, 
And that's worth it to me. Um, and I, I just thought that needed to be said because, you know, I don't get the you know, people on the internet who are like otherwise intelligent people. And they're like, why are you doing this? You have 10 views on YouTube. Like, and, and my question back is basically like, why is that your criteria criterion for why does somebody do something? Right. So, so I could do a much more, if I wanted to, if, if my goal was to make a podcast that has lots of listeners, I could easily, well, easily get more listeners than for this show. Um, Right, I could have just like if Dan and me back in the day wanted to have make, made money with Linux Outlaws, we could have just get, gotten a sponsor. We had sponsorship offers. If we wanted to just maximize our fame or impact on society, whatever, we could have milked the show much longer. But we were like after seven years, and I still feel like that today. I can't talk about Dan, but to me, after seven years, I had said everything that I wanted to say about Linux, and I wanted to move on, and that's why we stopped the show. And I didn't think about like, oh, the, I knew that if I ever do, I didn't want to, I didn't do a podcast for over a year after that. I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done for a while. That was a good year. But after that, I got the itch again. But I knew like the new podcast wasn't going to be like, it wouldn't even have 10, 10% of the listeners. But that was the goal. That's not the goal, right? Um, and I don't want to be that guy right there. So I, we talked about Drachenort on this, on this show. I talked about this uh quite a lot and there's a current podcast which is like a relatively main podcast are mainstream now a mainstream podcast um where like the current season jump podcast is about um uh Rainer winkler drachenlord and it's like sh like it's it's sh shit like you did the guy is like a journalist but like his i i just i had to stop listening out to it but like it's so bad it's like basically you can tell that guy just read press reports from from colleagues and then he he just perpetuates the same idea that everybody has you know the guy's being bullied the poor guy whatever you can tell immediately that the guy hasn't sat down like reiner winkler Drachenort has like blasted thousands of hours of of shitty content into the uh ether and it's all archived because the haters archived everything so and i watched like hundreds of hours of that probably approaching 500 hours whatever i don't want to even know um you can tell that this guy hasn't sat down and watched like 10 hours of this guy's content right because there's like this podcast it's like very progressive and they're immediately gendering and they're like very you know aware and and listener uh, it's uh, you know, gendering everything, pronouns, whatever. And then they talk about this poor guy who's like, uh, who's like been just bullied. And you're like, you're trying to be respectful to people in your podcast. I, I mean, I, I guess that's the idea why you were virtue signaling with your gendering, right? And there's always people talking about like people being like the, the term misogynistic or like objectifying women get thrown around a lot and i've never i don't think i never in my life have like we're not talking like fictional tv right we're talking about an actual actual person met a person who has objectified women as much as Dran lord i mean this guy you listen to like private we're talking pri i mean it's worse enough on youtube on his youtube videos but like it is just 
pu you you just want to puke you listen to his like podcast uh, no podcast to his like discord rec private discord recordings which some haters have recorded without him knowing where he's like in a he's like in a discord room and 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 she suddenly realizes that there's a woman there with him because it's discord and or teamspeak whatever you can hear people talk and you can hear that this guy says three sentences and by the third third sentence you can hear him veering towards basically asking the question how fuckable are you and there were instances when he asked pretty much that very question you're like if you if you'd done some fucking research into this guy right uh, and you done some like you'd figured out what kind of guy that is and what kind of content he is. You wouldn't like on your on your podcast where you're trying very hard to be respectful to everybody, whatever gender and whatever they identify as. You wouldn't even start to begin seeing this guy as a victim. Like if if the societal like if your bubble wasn't convinced that this guy is a victim and you just heard him talk. He would be cancelled so quickly by you, it wouldn't even be like you couldn't, you couldn't even blink. Um, but no, 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 no. This you have if you do a podcast like that, of course, um, you conform to the mainstream opinion, and you do all the, all the things that that you should do. You know, you do all the virtue signaling, and you, you of course, you'll become a, a professional. Uh, you know, a professional. A, I'm a professional podcaster. I mean, technically, um, you become like a, 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 a podcast with like tons of listeners. Um, of course. And I'm not saying that because I'm, I'm I'm jaded. I'm not. My point I'm making is I could do a podcast like that. I could. Um, I don't. You know, it's it's not guaranteed that you have this kind of success. And you mentioned in you know Zeit Spiegel, I said everywhere all the big uh, uh, you know publications. Oh, this is amazing podcast. This is oh, this is definite telling on the, the first real journalistic uh, 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 you know. Um, coverage of the Drachenlord saga and whatever complete bullshit right but like that's that's the way you do that but i would rather have a podcast with five listeners than do that like do a shitty job um of like covering a, a topic like a shitty job like really like a, a like do the shittiest research and just conform to what everybody says to get clicks no i you know if if i would do a podcast on that topic and i've done several episodes i you know you you can listen to them i did the very critical um examination from all sides which which people don't like because you just get shit stormed everywhere like because in today's world where everything's just polarized you know if if you if you um do a critical episode and you go like well the guy is an asshole um and i don't think he's a victim but what like the haters are doing to him is despicable and they're basically i don't think it's really bullying but it's debatable because like the techniques they're using is that you know bullying techniques except he kind of encourages us it because it makes him money right that's not, like you get shit from all sides like you get the haters oh he's kind of uh on on Drachenlord's side and you get the mainstream media guys what do you mean he's not a victim he's clearly bullied like you know, you don't get you don't you don't get applauded for that shit. But it's the you know it's that's why it's mainstream media doesn't do this, right? 
and it's not only about podcasting like it's when i write things i rather um like there's you know i, I rather write and and if i write a technical story about something right i rather write it in my blog where i have you know 40 50000 readers than selling a story to der spiegel where i'd have like 4 to 5 million readers um and i've 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 tried right i've tried literally i have uh, a signed contract with them right i could submit stories to them but like i've i've did so in the past and it was always like oh yeah they're but they're too technical you need to break this down further it's like no what you're objecting to is actually doing a good job because this is a hard topic like this it security and whatever you can't just say it was the russians and then you're done with it like this is just you have to look at it from all sides and it's very gray and it's very complicated but people doesn't you don't win the pulitzer prize with that sadly like you don't you don't you don't get many readers with that you get many readers with shitty stories that you put a spin on and you make it like a storytelling experience um which i don't you know i don't want to do that and then that this is why i do what i do anyway i've now bored you enough but i thought I'd, i'll just take this segment um in another direction and talk about this a little bit because i get this once in a while and i think it bears telling and I, I don't think i mean this is not for the guy on youtube i don't think the guy on youtube has actually listened to the podcast also he, he was german so he he'd, uh, he might not you know get the subtleties of everything um but i don't think he's listened to the podcast because then he would know he would know all of this you know all of this but i think it still bears um it's not repeating because i've never said it before but i think it's important it, it's important to say this right because you don't know my i mean i did an episode about where i'm coming from and whatever but i don't think i said so clearly uh why i do this stuff it's not about the fucking numbers i want to do a good job um and i rather have fewer listeners that are very intelligent write very interesting things than be the biggest i don't know political whatever podcast on on spotify i don't care i'm not so old that i don't care anymore i'm relatively happy i'm living a good life i know i'm privileged you know um i work a hell of a lot but you know i also do i the stuff i do uh i do because i want to right and in the end that's why i quit my job at a publishing company because to do this shit right because i don't i don't want to really sometimes i don't want to think about like the, the, how much money does this make how many readers are going to read this i don't care i want to write this because i think it needs to be said and i think um <laughs> i used to be i used to think when i was younger uh, uh, 10 15 years ago <laughs> um i used to think you know if you do good work um it will eventually um you know rise to the top the cream will rise to the top of course that's not true i mean you can do good work all your life and still be fucked and nobody hears about it but you know um even on the internet where you know new media new rules everything's uh equal um yeah not really um but who cares right um, as long as you're here and you're happy and I'm here and I'm happy. Um, that's all that counts, I think. Uh, and with that, let's thank the people that made this possible. Um, thank, thanks to Sir Galtaran, Rodanian Saint, Steve Hose, Butterbeans, Michael Small, 
1911G, Jonathan Hathai, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jaroslav Lichtblau, Dave, Sandman 616, Jackie Plage, IKN, Bennett Piata, Rizal, Vlad, Avis, Joe Poser, Dirk Didi, Indie Game X, Fadi Mansour, Kai Sears, David Potter, Cam, Mika, Mr. Amish, Robert Forster, Captain Neckhead, Crunkle, AJ Tracy, Rick Bragg, Ricky M, Astro C, Barry Williams, Jonathan, Superuser D, and Superuser D, and Florian, P Florian Pigor. Also, thanks to my Twitch subscribers, even though I'm not streaming this episode on Twitch for scheduling reasons because I'm pre-recording this. Uh, but thanks to my Twitch subscribers. Nonetheless, Mike, the Dane, Jonathan... <coughs> oh God, I have to drink something. I'm sorry. I've talked more like I did. I had a talking engagement this morning. Hmm. My voice is... I'm losing my voice. <laughs> Jonathan, 4747, MT, Sorrow, Galtaron, El Jim, Pekimer, Bacon the Pork, Mode 7 is unavailable, Redeemer F, and Stupid End User. I'm also thankful to ByteMark at ByteMark.co.uk, who provide the hosting and the service for this podcast for free and enable me to keep the show going. This sounds like I'm reading off a script, but I'm not. Um, it's just my script reading voice. Uh, so I sound like a professional news anchor on CNN. Uh, and with that, I'm out of here. Uh, theme, th th theme tune <laughs> for this show. Okay, we gotta go. Uh, is um, by Raul Kabzadi. And also, I'm going to play us out with a song called Fight to Win by Sven Carlson. Yeah, and as you can tell, I'm, I'm, I'm falling apart. I need to finish this. Go to bed and then get it to you another day. But this will mean nothing to you um, <laughs> by the time you listen to it. Anyway, I'll I'll take a week off uh, from the show. I'm, I'm not taking a week off. I'm just taking a week off from the show, which, uh, you know, if you can tell by my state right now, is probably a good idea, <laughs> except uh, in a week I've forgotten how to do these things. Um, and then it'll be all, all fall apart again. But yeah, you, you're used to that by now. Thanks for sticking with me. Thanks for writing feedback. I appreciate it a lot. And um, yeah, always ask the next question. Even though people don't like it. Still very important. It's an important thing to do. <laughs>